You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and I fully am aware that I'm disappointing many of you, as many of you were expecting Charles to preach this morning, continuing on with the Jonah series, but you get me instead. So, uh, But I'm, I'm grateful to be here with you. The Jonah series will be sporadic throughout the summer, so, uh, so, so Josue uh, did a great job kicking off that series last week, and so you'll hear from Charles uh, in the near future as we continue that study of Jonah 2. But as I'll be preaching throughout the summer, uh, I'll be preaching from Ephesians. So let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Let me read God's word for us. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For our anniversary this year, Caitlin and I uh, took a trip to the middle of nowhere, Virginia. I think that's actually the name of the town. I'm just kidding. It was really in the middle of nowhere. We stayed at an Airbnb, uh, and it was a great time. And we picked the middle of nowhere for a reason, because we wanted to just completely disconnect from all the sorts of demands on our plate, disconnect from family life, disconnect from digital distractions. There was no cell service, no Wi-Fi, and disconnect from all the stresses of life. And so with nothing but time and nothing to do nearby, we, we found uh, just a few miles away an out-and-back trail uh, just a few miles away. And so we decided to take one of our days and just go and walk. And so we went to the trail and we walked together through the rural Virginian countryside for the next 10 miles. We walked out and walked back. And I've, I've always enjoyed walking. Uh, my, uh, my family normally finds me walking around our neighborhood. Uh, and there's something about walking that I find refreshing. Maybe it's the slow pace Maybe it's the, the space to pray and to think. Maybe it's the fresh air. But something about it just revives my, my soul. Maybe you found that similarly. And it's an apt metaphor for the Christian life, walking. An apt metaphor for Christian discipleship. But, but walking can be challenging, can't it? When Caitlin and I approached mile eight and nine, our feet were sore, our calves ached. That book bag full of water I had on my back felt three times heavier by the time we were getting to those last few miles as it dug into my shoulders. And like walking 10 miles, it can be hard. Sometimes you're tempted to turn around and, and go back to give up. But the Christian life in its walking is an act of perseverance. And like walking 10 miles, it's best to do it with those whom you love. 
And so as we move out of the doctrinal section of the book of Ephesians from chapters 1, 2, and 3, we now move into the second half of this letter into the application where Paul is going to exhort us to live in response to the gospel that he's been expounding for those first three chapters. So we are going to first see this morning the connection between our walking and our calling, and then we will see and hear Paul's charge to live in peace and unity together. So let's first consider this morning walking in our calling, walking in our calling. Walking was a Hebrew idiom for living. It was a metaphor they commonly used, and it's one that we have adopted today. Maybe you've had another member of this church come up and ask you, how's your walk with the Lord? Right? This is a language we use quite frequently. Uh, and the image of walking is not just here in Ephesians, but it's all over the Bible as a metaphor for our spiritual lives. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Abraham and Isaac, the scripture says, walked before God. God commanded Israel to walk in his statutes. The psalmist says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Micah tells us to walk humbly with God. It's all over the Old Testament, this idea of walking with the Lord. And for Paul, walking was one of his favorite images to describe the Christian life. And he uses it over and over again in his writings. Christ was raised from the grave so that we might walk in newness of life. Or we walk by faith and not by sight. Or in Galatians 5, we walk by the Spirit. He even mentions walking earlier in the book of Ephesians. You remember where it was? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as Paul picks up this imagery of walking that he introduced back in Ephesians 2, uh, Paul is writing from prison to the Ephesians. He's a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And it's on the basis of his love for the church that Paul makes that appeal in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, notice the, the therefore in verse 1. Right? That's always an important word when we see it in Paul's letters. It's a word that connects the two sections of Ephesians together. Paul is transitioning in this letter. He's going from the, the theological, doctrinal matters he spent the first three chapters talking about, and now he's transitioning into practical, everyday, ordinary Christian living. And he does so, he wants us to keep in mind the entire scope of the gospel that he's taught from chapters 1, 2, and 3. He doesn't want us to miss, miss the, that connection. So he uses therefore as a, a bridge. Because of everything he's been talking about, these first three chapters, therefore, walk in a manner worthy. You see, it is a condemnable error to attempt to live the Christian life without the gospel. A lot of people try it. Everybody fails, right? You can't do it without gospel. If we read Paul carefully, if we read this letter carefully, Paul prevents us from making that mistake. Everything from Ephesians 4 onward to the end of the letter is tethered to the incredible spiritual blessings that God has worked by his power through Christ in the church. 
Everything is built upon Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And so Paul will not let us confine the gospel, though, to theological musings or pietistic dreaming. The gospel is expressed not just in word, but in action. The work of God's grace in our lives is not just this philosophical construct that seminary students study, but it must be lived out daily in our ordinary reality. So hypocrisy, particularly Christian hypocrisy, is whenever we take Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 and separate them from Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. That's a definition of hypocrisy. Our confession of Christ and the reality of the gospel, they should match. They should cohere. They should bear upon each other. And so here Paul is showing us how the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ connects our mind and our heart to our hands and our feet. They go together. A proper understanding of the gospel, if you really get it, if you really understand, if you really know what it means to be a child of God and saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then it reveals itself in the manner by which you walk. So as Paul urges the Ephesians, he urges all of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ and, as our Savior, he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Now, what is this calling to which we've been called? Again, you've got to go back to Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 to remember that. Remember Ephesians 1, verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. By the blood of Jesus, we are now God's children, united to him by faith in Christ. God has called us out of death into life through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has called us together as one new man in the place of two, a united church bound by Jesus. And so Paul's point as he opens chapter four is to be consistent here. That if God has given us this heavenly calling as his child, and if God is forming us together as a holy temple for his glory, this is our calling. Paul says, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of it. This is what God has done in the gospel. Therefore, live in accordance with it. You see, the reality of the gospel message has massive implications on what you do when you get home this afternoon and what you do when you wake up tomorrow, how you go to work, how you speak to your family, how you care for other members. It's got massive implications for day-by-day, ordinary, routine, mundane Christian living. And so thus, walking, walking is such a great picture of the Christian life, isn't it? There's nothing fancy about walking, is there? And walking is simply how we travel. It's how, how we get from point A to point B. It's ordinary. We have a direction that we're trying to go. We've got a pace. We have a destination in mind whenever we set our feet to moving. It's a basic human function. And so the imagery of walking so beautifully captures the dynamics of everyday ordinary Christian living. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ must trickle into the most ordinary and mundane aspects of your life and mine. But, you know, sometimes we're not very cognizant about our walk, are we? Chances are, when you pulled into the parking lot this morning, you walked into this room without thinking about it, did you? You you didn't have to, to get out of the car and pause for a moment and say, okay, all right, right foot, take a step, right? Left foot, take a step. 
And we keep doing that until I get to my nice, comfortable red chair. Oh, and watch out for that curb as you're getting over. We, we don't have to think about walking, do we? we? We do it largely automatically on autopilot. Our walk is habitual. We don't think very much about the way that we walk or how we walk. We no more think about our stride than we think about breathing. But yet Paul says, watch how you walk. Walk in a manner worthy. Therefore, changing the way that we walk can sometimes be really hard to change because we're not always aware of how we walk. Since I was a child, uh, I have had the habit of walking on my toes. Some of you know this. Kids in school, I was always an an awkward, quiet child anyway, moved a lot during middle school, and that's, of course, a, a difficult time. But kids in my school made fun of me because I tended to bob down the hallway as I walked on my toes. I even had one kid who thought I was so bizarrely walking because I was a proud man who was trying to flex my calf muscles as I walked down the hallway to impress people. It's kind of weird. But, but how, did, how did I start to walk with that sort of brisk bounce in my step? I've got no idea, right? I wasn't cognizant of it in any way. But I can tell you that changing the way I walked required a great deal of concentration and focus. Even today, I find myself returning instinctively to that bounce when I'm walking quickly. So the Christian life, we want to change the way that we walk. It requires a great deal of watchfulness over how we walk. And changing the way that we walk can be a challenge. But by the Spirit of God, we must walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been given. We are God's children now. We walk differently because of that. And let us then set our focus on every part of our lives, examining and sensing how can I bring glory to God in every part of my life? How can I walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ as God's son or daughter, justified by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? How does that change every aspect of our lives. You see, people today tend to want to compartmentalize their lives. I've got my church life, my work life, my family life, my hobby life, my entertainment life, and they're all little compartments and we don't mingle them together, but that's not the way the Christian thinks about living. All of life is lived unto the glory of God. Jesus is Lord over it all. And so therefore, every part of your life must be brought into the light of the gospel. So we are God's children. So I invite you, It's a bit painful, but engage in that discipline of self-examination. As the Lord said in Haggai, church, consider your ways. Consider your ways. How are you walking? Where are you going in life? How is the cadence of your steps? What is your pace? Are you stumbling? Are you resorting to bad habits? Are you drifting off course? And we have to apply that sort of examination even to the most mundane and indeed the most private parts of our lives, parts we don't want anybody to know about. How, how's my financial management? Am I walking in a manner worthy? How's my speech? Am I walking in a manner worthy? How's my eating? Am I walking in a manner worthy? In my marriage, am I walking in a manner worthy? In my sexuality, Am I walking in a manner worthy? In my career, am I walking in a manner worthy? In my friendships, am I walking in a manner worthy? In my social media and entertainment habits, what I watch and stream, am I walking in a manner 
worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, there is no area of your life that you can keep away from Jesus. No area. Christ is Lord over it all. And if you have been called by Jesus, if you've been adopted as one of God's children, then he is a good father who has authority over your life. And he has called you out of darkness, out of death, into life, and into holiness. And the Christians should strive to exhibit this holiness in every part of your life, even the part of your life that is hidden and kept away from everywhere and everyone else. Every aspect of your life should be lived consistently in light of our gospel calling. The whole Christian life is a struggle to do this. It's a struggle to live and walk faithfully, to walk in a manner worthy. You will fail. You will struggle. And sometimes you might even find yourself walking with a bit of a limp. But God is faithful. He is faithful. He will strengthen us. He will help us. He has given us his spirit who works in our inner being. And so over time, as we mature and grow in godliness, as we repent day after day, week by week, as we try to, to walk in a manner worthy with the spirit's help, our walk with God ought to become more consistent, sweeter, and worthy of God's call in our lives. Walking worthy is difficult, but by God's grace, we don't do so alone. And that leads to a second point this morning, walking in peace, walking in peace. So before we get too far into this text, we have to call out an assumption that Paul has, as he writes, that we often so miss because we're so individualistic about things. But this is the assumption that Paul has, even as he writes these words. Paul assumes that the Christian life is a communal life. I'll say that one more time in case you missed it. Paul assumes that the Christian life is a communal life, a communal life. The worthy call of the gospel can only be lived out in proximity with other believers. So as Paul elaborates on this worthy call of the gospel, notice, notice how his description of this worthy call of the gospel, uh, how it, that walk is displayed with other people. We are to walk worthy. How? What does Paul say in verse 2? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Those are all relational aspects to our walking. You can't do that by yourself. You do it with other people. So those who walk worthy in the gospel walk together with others in the gospel. We don't walk alone. The assumption lurking behind all of the New Testament is that those who are saved by Christ are gathered together in local churches and belong to them as a community of saints. I've heard people say many times, including many pastors, in fact, I even heard a pastor say it at the Southern Baptist Convention from the platform this week, that, that the churches would be great if it weren't for all the people. And I just think, what a dumb thing to say, Right? Yeah, I get the sentiment, right? Sometimes living life together can be hard and challenging. But if there are no people, you don't have a church. I mean, that's what the church is, is a people. If there are no people, you're out of a job, right? There's nothing to do. There's no ministry to be done. People are the ministry. 
And so such an attitude where we won't get cynical about the people in the church reflects just a massive misunderstanding of the Christian gospel and of what God is doing in and through the Christian lives of his people. So listen carefully. If you think other Christians are an obstacle to your walk with the Lord, then you have drifted into a hyper-individualistic, a hyper-introverted, and a gospel-contradicting walk. That is not what God is doing. He has formed a people for his own possession, of which you have been graciously granted to be a part of. Other Christians are an obstacle to your faith, to your walk. You you hear people say things today like, well, I, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Or you hear people saying things like, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I'm just not into church. And I think if the Apostle Paul could be resurrected early, right, and come back and, and hear us say such things today, he would just be absolutely baffled. I don't even think he would understand what we were talking about. He wouldn't even comprehend it. You, what do you mean you love Jesus without the church? How, how's that even plausible? He, if the love of Christ has been poured into our hearts, mustn't there be someone to express it to? The Christian walk isn't private. It is communal. So do you remember what John says is one of the great markers of how do we know if we're really Christian or not in in 1 John? He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. How do you know if you're a Christian? Do you love God's people, right? How can we love the brothers if we refuse to gather with them, if we refuse to be bound by them? You see, the local church isn't an optional supplement to the gospel. It's not like a multivitamin where you can leave it on the table or not, and it doesn't make a huge difference, right? No, it is is the direct consequence of the gospel. God has formed a people in his son. So the church, therefore, isn't an obstacle to our holiness. It is the means that God uses to achieve our holiness, So the local church is God's gift to us. And though it's a community, we want to walk in a manner worthy together as a people. And the worthy life of the gospel must be shown in how we treat one another, how we interact with one another. Look at what Paul says. First, he says we have to walk with all humility, with all humility. We must put to death our pride that is always lurking in our hearts. We have to place ourselves last for the sake of others. That means we must look around in humility at our fellow brothers and sisters. And my first thought, my first inclination should be, how can I serve them? How can I love them? How can I lay down my wants for their spiritual good in Christ? How can I serve them with joy? Walking worthy means walking humbly in service to others. And then second, Paul says we have to walk with gentleness, gentleness. We don't handle each other roughly in the church. Tenderness and kindness should be in our speech. Even when we correct one another, even when we entreat and admonish one another, it must be done with tenderness and kindness and gentleness. Friends, listen to me. Brashness is not a spiritual gift. Gentleness is. Gentleness is. Walking worthy means we take this restless evil and this deadly poison that James calls the human tongue and we submit it to the Lordship of Christ in service to one another. 
Third, Paul says, walking worthy means doing so with patience, with patience, bearing with one another in love, he says. We have to imitate the Lord here. The Lord is slow to anger. Walking worthy means that we don't grow frustrated and irritable at each other's weaknesses. It means that we bear with those who annoy us, that we show compassion for those who tend to bother us. You see, living out this sort of humility, gentleness, and patience happens in the context of the local church. You can't do this on your own, can you? you ha- it requires other people being involved. And here we are, right now, gathered together as a church, a group of redeemed sinners who possess the same spirit of God, seeking to live together in a manner worthy of our calling. And the local church and the proximity of the relationships that happen there, what tends to happen? Well, our sinful nature is frequently exposed. Frequently. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Community is God's gracious means of exposing sin in your heart. Now, you can go and live by yourself, and you can think, hey, I'm a pretty saintly person. But live together with others. And what tends to happen? You begin to discover how deeply sinful you really are. I tell those entering marriage or welcoming children that family tends to expose, to reveal the sin that's lurking in your heart. Sin that's always been there, but sin that you were just oblivious to because the pressures and the circumstances that relational intimacy hasn't exposed them. And so what tends to happen for, for, for people when they first get married and when they first start having children is you just begin to discover, man, I'm a lot more selfish. I'm a lot more prideful than I ever thought I was. And so if you think you're selfish and prideful now, get married, right? And then you see it yet again. <laughs> and then... Once you think you start making some progress in holiness, man, I'm I'm becoming more humble and more servant-oriented. I'm putting to death my pride. Then you start having children, right? And then you start realizing how self-indulgent and self-serving you really are. You see, within the intimate proximity of life together, our sin cannot hide. It cannot hide. We become known even unto ourselves. We become exposed to others And we discover, sometimes quite painfully, the hidden sin lurking within us that we hadn't even realized was there without the friction of community. But while community exposes our corruption, the great grace that it gives is that it gives us ample opportunity to grow, to repent of our sin, to give grace, to forgive one another, to grow together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thankfully, You don't have to get married and have children to experience these spiritual benefits. The church is a family. It is a family. And the close proximity of our covenant life together, what tends to happen? Well, God exposes our sin, sometimes painfully. And we have ample opportunities to humble ourselves, to ask forgiveness, to hold our tongue, to speak gently, to overlook an offense as we bear with one another in love. And if you have yet to have that opportunity here at Redemption Church, just give it time. It will come. And so this sort of relational friction, sometimes people get concerned about that in the church. That's part of God's providential care for his people. This friction is the means by which God is sanctifying us. We need one another. 
even in that friction that can come with our relationships because it gives us opportunity to grow in Christian love for one another and to help each other repent and to grow in grace. You see, it is our life together that we help each other walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It is the local church where Christian love becomes not just a nice idea, but a costly act of sacrifice. It's easy to love when you don't have a face to that love. It's easy to love when you don't have someone who has hurt you or wounded you sitting across the table. We walk in a manner worthy together giving each other that sacrificial love in the same manner Christ has given us. And we trust and we depend on the Lord's strength to help us in this as we are bound together in the Holy Spirit as a covenant people in a local assembly of the church. If you are a member of Redemption Church, verse 3 of this text should sound incredibly familiar to you. In fact, I hope it does. This verse is directly stated in our church covenant. If you are unfamiliar with what a church covenant is, it is a document that all of our members sign stating our commitment to before God and how we will walk worthy together. It is a set of biblical expectations that we commit to do for one another and with one another as members of Christ's church. And what's the first line of our church covenant? It says, we will work and pray for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We will work and pray for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It's a direct reference to Ephesians chapter four, verse three. As we have seen in Ephesians, the unity and the peace we have together, that it is a supernatural achievement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unity is Jesus's doing. He has saved us. He has united us together as a new humanity. He has made peace by the blood of his cross. He has reconciled us together, thereby eliminating the hostility that existed between us. The church is united all because we are bound together in the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit of God. Only Christ can do this, right? So Paul writes that walking worthy doesn't mean creating unity and peace in the church. No, only Christ can do that. And Christ has already done it. We are united. We are at peace with one another. Instead, what does Paul say? He says we must be eager to, what does the language say? Eager to maintain, maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. You see, by our actions, we can maintain this unity that the the God has given us in Christ, or by our sin, we can tear that unity down. The Holy Spirit is at work in and through the saints of the church to build us up in Christ, and by our speech and by our actions, we ought to do that for one another. We ought to be building each other up in love. But Paul warns even later on in chapter 4, verse 30, that by our anger and by our corrupting talk, we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What does that mean? So, so, so by our walking together as a church, we can hinder the work of the Spirit that is trying to make actual our reality of unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we walk together as a church. And as we do, we should be eager to maintain this Christ-given unity, eager to maintain. You see, disunity is Satan's grand scheme to weaken the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we allow our 
anger and frustration with each other to go overnight? What does Paul say in Ephesians 4 verse 26? We give the devil a foothold in our hearts. When you secretly start storing bitterness and anger in your heart towards others in the church, Satan is using you to mount his attack against the church. In our generation, Satan has learned that the most effective way to attack God's church is not with the external attack of persecution, but with internal attacks of slander, backstabbing, bitterness, and anger. No wonder that Paul will conclude the letter of Ephesians by encouraging us to put on the whole armor of God so that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is what he's trying to do, divide, to tear down the unity that Christ has achieved by his blood. And so God has been so remarkably kind to us at Redemption Church. In our first four years, and believe it or not, we're getting close to four years of being a church, we have experienced a heavenly peace and a sweet unity that marks our congregation. We just had a unanimous vote for an associate pastor. I don't think I've ever gotten a unanimous vote on anything when I've been a pastor. <laughs> it's amazing to see that sort of unity in our congregation. It's a spirit-given thing. It is a spirit-wrought humility and gentleness and patience and like-mindedness. It is a, a gift of the Holy Spirit working among us. And we've had to work at that, haven't we, by God's grace? We've had to bear with one another our, our deficiencies, our shortcomings. But God has united us together in love for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his gospel. And praise God for that. But church, do not grow sleepy in the watchfulness of your own heart. We now find ourselves in a very exciting season of our church's life. There is a lot to be encouraged about, particularly if you were here at our members meeting this morning. Uh, it's at this point, I was talking to a few of our elders before our members meeting today. It's at this point with the exciting things that God seems to be working, even, and even developing a friendship between us and New Hope Missionary Baptist Church. There's a lot to be encouraged about, excited about, to see how the Lord is working. But this is at the point where Satan will attempt to thwart God's work by spreading the seed of bitterness and anger and malice in our hearts towards one another. Church, we must, you and I, we must be vigilant. We must forgive one another in the Lord. We must live in harmony together for the glory of Christ. Church, our unity is supernatural. God has done it. He has accomplished it by the power of Christ. But our experience of that unity here on this side of heaven can be quite fragile. Here's Paul's words. Hear them and do them. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Eagerness implies a sort of preemptiveness, doesn't it? We don't wait until World War III and the church before we start caring about unity. <laughs> no, we, we are eager to do so. Maintaining unity should be in the back of our minds as we engage in every conversation that we have with one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Watch what you say and watch how you say it. Watch what you do and how you do it. Be on guard against the schemes of the devil. Be quick to humble yourself and ask forgiveness at the hint of tension in any relationship that you might have with another covenant member. 
Resist the sin of pride that can lead to a calloused heart towards one another. Indifference about one of your brothers or sisters in this church is the first step towards hating them. Beloved, love is from God. Therefore, just as Jesus instructed us, so we must love one another. And with God's help, may we all be eager, eager, working hard, taking preemptive action to maintain our unity together, particularly before we come to the Lord's table every Sunday, the great symbol of our unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. May our church display rightly to the world a fractured, a divided, a hostile world. May we display the bond of peace accomplished by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then third, Paul says that this peace that we have with one another should be exhibited in our walking in unity. In verse four, five, and six, Paul challenges us to walk worthy by maintaining these bonds of peace in the church. And it leads Paul to reflect a bit on the great nature of Christian unity. You see, the unity of the local church should manifest the unity of the universal church, all the saints from all the ages who've been redeemed by Christ. And so we can speak of the church in two senses. We can speak of the universal church as the people of God from all ages who respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. And then the local church ought to be a physical manifestation of that universal church that the local church ought to be an outpost, an embassy of the kingdom of God, marked by the right preaching of the word and the boundary markers of the ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And so as Paul urges the Ephesian church to walk worthy in their local church in Ephesus, he reminds them in verse 4, 5, and 6 of the unity that the people of God have throughout the universal church. So Paul shows us the remarkable unity that God has given us in the gospel. Let's look at it a little bit more carefully. Paul says that there is one body referring to the universal church. While tens of thousands of local churches exist, every Christian truly repentant and putting their faith in Christ is connected to this universal church, the invisible church. So the unity of the gospel unites us, therefore, with other congregations who preach the gospel. So believers in other congregations are our brothers and sisters. We are one body together. Paul says there is one spirit. We are sealed by the same Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God is the one who binds us in peace together. Every Christian has the same Spirit of God dwelling within him or her. So we all share this one common hope of salvation that belongs to our call, We hope in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope in the forgiveness of sins together accomplished by Christ. And then he goes on to say, we have one Lord who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one authority. He is the one master. And we submit to his word. We live at his marching orders. And we have one faith, Paul says. Though we may have doctrinal disagreements between churches and between denominations, Every true church confesses that one faith, once for all delivered, our common shared confession of the gospel. So the early church called this the regula fide, or the rule of faith. It's the foundational canon of truth, the canon of Christian doctrine that we share with all Christians. That's one of the reasons why we do the Apostles' Creed. One of the reasons why in our confession of faith as a church, it begins with the Nicene Creed. 
right? We share unity even with non-Baptist churches and holding to this one faith once for all delivered. And then Paul says we have one baptism. Uh-oh, here we may be in trouble, right? What does this mean? While Christians disagree about the mode of baptism, whether we should baptize infants or believers, we, we do together, though, even in that disagreement, share the one conviction of inward baptism of the heart, right? Paul often uses baptism to refer to the Spirit's work of baptism or regeneration. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, for in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, So even though we might disagree on water baptism with other churches, we have unity with all true churches who are baptized in the one spirit of God. And so Paul concludes his thoughts on Christian unity by highlighting the unity of God himself. And there is one God and father over all, who is over all and through all and in all, he says. So the unity of the church overflows from God himself. God is a tri-unity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist forever together in an eternal harmony as the one God over all. And God is over all and through all and in all. And he is the one who has bound us to himself together through the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you've been a Christian for some time, perhaps you've had the joy of running into other Christians. Maybe you're on vacation Maybe you take a flight on a plane. Maybe you just strike up a conversation with a waiter at a restaurant. And isn't it such a joy to discover another brother or sister in this weary world? It's it's fascinating. Almost immediately, the bond of unity shows up as soon as you start talking about the Lord together. It's a connection of Christian love. The conversation begins to get serious. It becomes sweet. It becomes endearing whenever two Christians find themselves together in this lost and weary world. You thought you were strangers, but behold, the Lord has made you family. There's a special sort of unity that we have in the local church. It is the most direct and visible expression of Christian unity in this side of heaven. But there is a unity we share with all the saints. And what a joy it is to be a member of the universal church of Christ. There is unity across churches. That's why we pray for other churches. Right? There's unity across geography, across the nations, across ethnicities. We are one together in Christ. And so as we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, we do so together. Together. We don't do it alone. God has formed us as his people. We are Christ's church. We live in an isolated, in a alone and fractured world. How sweet it is to be bound together in Christ. The world needs the gospel. And may the Lord strengthen us as a church as we open up our arms to this lonely world with the unity and peace available only through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you recognizing how we need your help.
Lord, we ask that you might help us to walk in a manner worthy of this gospel that we've been received, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Lord, we pray that we might do so with humility and gentleness and patience, that we might bear with one another in love. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And Lord, that the unity in our church would be an expression, would be make manifest and visible to the world, Lord, the great unity that you have as you are one God, and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. God, you are a glorious God who has united us to yourself through your Son, by your Spirit. And so, God, we pray, Lord, that the unity of your church would be expressed and maintained here at Redemption Church, or that you would convict us of any sin in our lives so that we might walk in a manner worthy of you. And Lord, we pray that for all of us, that you would help us to be drawn into the community of your church, or that we would gladly commit in membership to one another, that we would gladly sign a church covenant, committing our lives to one another, because Lord, this is what you have done in the gospel. We need one another. And through our life together, we are walking increasingly so in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we ask that you might help us and strengthen us and care for us. And Lord, above all, may you be glorified in us as your church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.